You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 46 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today, we're joined by Father McFarland to discuss the other groups that commonly say the traditional Latin Mass known as the Ecclesia Dei Communities, since they were formed after the decree of Pope John Paul II by the same name. Among traditional Catholics, there seems to be a lot of confusion about why there's this division between the Society of St. Pius X and these groups. On the surface, both look identical. Both say the Latin Mass. Both are Orthodox in their sacraments and teaching. The priests wear cassocks, etc. So what's the problem with the Fraternity of St. Peter or the Institute of Christ the King and all the others? Is it just a traditional Catholic version of a big feud like the Hatfields and McCoys? Father McFarland explains why, objectively, there is a difference. Right now, on the SSPX Podcast. Welcome to the SSPX Podcast and our next episode in the Crisis in the Church series. Welcoming Father McFarland from Our Lady of Sorrows again. Hi, Father. How are you? Good. I'm doing well, Andrew. How about you? Doing all right. Thank you. Uh, today, we are talking about someone other than the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, for the last few episodes, we've been talking about the SSPX uh, and is it legitimate? Can we go to these masses? All of these sorts of questions. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at a different group or a grouping of groups, uh, and that is the Ecclesia Dei communities. Um, why why talk about someone else at this point in this series, Father? Because of a, a perceived resemblance uh, between the Society of St. Pius X and these groups. So they are groups that have the, the traditional Latin mass. They do have um, many of the, the traditions uh, of the, of the church in their, in their daily life and so on. And the, the question comes up, well, why, why, why not those groups? Why the Society of St. Pius X? These groups have uh, an official standing in regard to the authorities in Rome. The Society of St. Pius X doesn't. Therefore, it seems like they're better right. that, you know, we should go with them instead of with the society who does not have that that official approval. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, you're going to be speaking from the point of, of view of the Society of St. Pius X. You are an SSPX priest. Um, right. uh, so I think right off the bat, there's going to be some criticism about this episode where people are going to say, well, Father, you're just being a, a homer. You're just uh, talking about the SSPX because... You just want to protect your turf. Um, is that is that what you're going to be doing? Right. And making myself unpopular at the same time. Right, exactly. Ah. Right. <laughs> at least with a certain certain groups of people. No, it's it's not that at all. You know, my point is not to to attack persons. This isn't this isn't a personal thing. Um, you know, for for those people who are listening who are in any way attached to these these different groups that we. We label uh, the Ecclesia Dei communities um, for those who have no dog in this fight at all. I would just ask them to to listen to the actual arguments, the, the points that are being made from uh, as objective a point of view as possible. Uh, I'm sure that there are plenty of wonderful priests and religious and faithful in and around these groups. And it's not my point to say that there aren't or that everyone who belongs to one of these groups is, is, is going to hell. Uh, I'm not saying that. But my my point is going to be that their response to the present crisis in the church is, is not the right one. Okay. And I hold the position of the Society of St. Pius X, not because I was born into this uh, association with them. Uh, I found the traditional mass in the society at, at the age of, of nearly 22. Um, and I went with the society and I entered the society seminary because I believe then, as I still do 
perhaps even probably even certainly even more forcefully now uh, that the society's response to the crisis in the church is the only consistent and coherent one. Okay. So, so this is a, a, a good time to talk about this topic. Uh, this is a time of some tremendous confusion. Um, there's, there's a lot of confusion. You know, it, I keep thinking back uh, to the time before you and I were born, Father. It, it, was, it was pretty easy to know right from wrong. It was pretty easy to know, all right, the Catholic Church says this, we do this. Um, but now we are we, we faithful and probably even you priests at, at some, in some regard are kind of left all right, do I follow this? Do I do this? So at this point, it's, it's difficult for many of the faithful to kind of figure out who to follow. Right. And I think that there is, you know, on that account, we need to be understanding and patient with one sure. another. Um, but we do need to, to found our decisions on principles and not on our feelings or on any sort of, of, of appearances. You know, we have to, to keep in mind that, that all human authority is, is limited is subordinate to God's authority. So consequently, when any authority, even the highest authorities in the church, even the Pope are in contradiction to what's been commanded by God, we have an obligation to, to resist what that authority is, is trying to make us do that is opposed to, uh, to God's law. And, and the church's law is not an end in itself. It doesn't exist for the sake of existing, uh, there is no principle that, that outside of canon law, there is no salvation that that does not exist. Um, and in fact, the, the that law itself foresees circumstances, situations where the the ordinary application of the letter of the law will not be possible. We call those states of necessity. And that law says that the salvation of souls is the highest law. So it's a that's a perennial. Catholic principle applied to canon law. It's even been made a part of the 1983 code of canon law. I mean, the whole purpose is, is to save souls. If adherence to the letter of the law is, is not saving souls, then it's not doing its job. And then the law needs to be set aside in that particular uh, case, particularly if it's militating against the salvation of souls. Just like if you're driving someone with a mortal wound to the hospital, you don't you scrupulously obey the speed limit right. Right? because it's opposed to the, the purpose of the law. Right. Um, so if in a given situation, a canon law, the final letter of canon law does impedes the salvation of souls. Well, then we don't adhere to the letter. So let's dive into some of these groups. Um, and I guess we can start by saying that the Ecclesia Dei groups, again, they we're calling Ecclesia Dei groups, groups that, um, generally say the traditional Latin mass, follow the traditional sacraments, you know, all of this sort of thing, but are have a, a an official capacity within the Catholic Church. Uh, and these groups have been in the in the news again recently. Right. And we should point out that, it, you know, it's a convenient term, sure. uh, the ecclesia communities and so on that has taken it been taken from the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, which formerly oversaw these groups on behalf of Rome. That commission was dissolved by Pope Francis, so it doesn't really apply anymore. Nevertheless, we keep the name simply for convenience sake. Everybody's what we're talking about. Right. And they have been in the news again, particularly um, with the, the Moto Proprio Tradiciones Custodes in, uh, in July, back in July of this year, uh, which Pope Francis issued limiting the use of the traditional mass um, imposing onerous conditions on continuing to say the traditional mass and especially trying to impede any further spread 
uh, of the use of the the missile of 1962. Right. You know, in the uh, the letter that accompanies that motu proprio, uh, Saint, uh, Pope Francis says, "But I'm nonetheless saddened that the instrumental use of missile romanum of 1962 is often characterized by a rejection not only of the liturgical form." but of the Vatican Council to itself, claiming with unfounded and unsustainable assertions that it betrayed tradition and the quote-unquote true church. The path of the church must be seen within the dynamic of tradition, which originates with the apostles and progresses in the church with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And that last clause is a quotation of the Vatican II document, Dei Verbum, which we'll return to later. And in this document, to a certain extent, Pope Francis is, is clarifying the situation. Right. We're dealing with really two different conceptions of the Catholic faith. One that, that we hold uh, in the Society of St. Pius X is that that Catholic faith is unchanging and unchangeable. The other, changing continuously to correspond with, with mankind's experience, right? which is a principle that's that's a very heart of modernism. You know, the, the idea of religious experience and the the evolution of that experience and the consequent evolution of, of dogma, you know, totally changing the, the meaning of that term. And then, you know, you have had, uh, especially since uh, the pontificate of Benedict XVI, but even before that, this hermeneutic of continuity. The, the You know, we're going to square the circle and have both conceptions of tradition of the faith at the same time. And it, it really doesn't work. Okay. Um, and then, so you have this, this letter, which is presenting the, the missile of 1962 as in itself being opposed to that conception of the, of the church where the faith evolves. And that's, and we would say, yeah, that it is opposed to that. And that's a good thing. Uh, the the response from these these ecclesia day groups was uh, rather different. They wrote a letter to the French bishops on the subject of of this motu proprio and its accompanying letter that was uh, dated August thirty first of this year. And I would say the letter that they wrote, their response, throws into very clear relief the the problems with the the Ecclesia Dei mentality, right? In it, they say, we affirm our adherence to the magisterium, including that of Vatican II and what follows according to the Catholic doctrine of the ascent due to it. And there's a qualifier there, kind of an escape hatch, but they're, they are reaffirming their adherence to Vatican II and what follows. Um, that sentiment is a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indicates the the main problem with these congregations, with these institutes. They go on to to beg for a mediator. They protest that they feel marginalized and oppressed, and they want to enter into dialogue with the church authorities. They're effectively asking for a peaceful coexistence. Uh, let them continue to have their traditional mass in the midst of the world of the Novus Ordo, which they're effectively saying we're not complaining about. No big deal. Just keep letting us do our, Just our let thing. Just have our little pocket of traditional Latin mass and, and we could ignore all the rest. Right. Uh, and, you know, the question then becomes, well, is, is the church actually in a crisis? Um, is Vatican II a major reason for that crisis? 
are there a lot of things in the post-conciliar documents that are at odds with what has always been taught by the church? And does that Novus Ordo Mass express the Catholic faith regarding the holy sacrifice, or does it represent both as a whole and in its details a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass, of the mass as it was formulated in Session 22 of the Council of Trent, uh, it, you know, and so on? Right? Is it possible to, in good conscience, to pretend that there are no dangerous problems in the church so that we continue, can continue to have official approval? Right. I mean, and, and we've been looking at this over the last 45 episodes, Father, and, and especially right. in the first episode that you and I did uh, back about a year ago. Um, there's a crisis in the church. There's a problem in the church. Uh, and, and I mean, are, are priests and, and the hierarchy in, in these Ecclesia Day groups, are they recognizing that? Do they see that? I don't see how they couldn't. <laughs> uh, it, it, But seeing it as one thing and, and then your public reaction to it is is another thing. So they're they're effectively if they're seeing it, then they're expressing a certain willingness to to keep quiet about it or to turn to blind eye to it, so that they can t- can continue to have their their little traditional pocket continue to do their traditional thing. So what's what's more important? Adherence to the, the truth, the reality, um, or continuing to have approval, having that, that letter of the law uh, canonical standing. Let's, um, I, I guess we can dive into the history a little bit, Father, uh, unless I'm cutting you off on something else. But there are there are multiple groups within the, these this broader community that we're calling the Ecclesia Dei uh, groups. Where did they all start? Who are the bigger players in it? Well, I think the, the the principal one that we can kind of focus on is the Fraternity of St. Peter. Um, they're the oldest, the largest of the Ecclesia Dei Institutes. Um, and, you know, the, the recent letter of the Superior General shows that they're all pretty much on the same page as far as the big principles go uh, anyway. So um, in the interests of... of um, not spending forever on this this particular podcast and uh, perhaps a little bit of a, an oversimplification, but uh, not too much. I think at the point, uh, we still get the point across. And they began in 1988. Okay. So from 1975, when you had this the suppression of the, the SSPX by um, the Roman authorities, that until 1988, there was no congregation approved by Rome that was dedicated to the use of the traditional Roman liturgy uh, in the church. Um, so this, the SSPX and our allies were, were really at that time the only show in town. And we can mention that the founding members of the Fraternity of St. Peter were members of the Society of St. Pius X at that time. And while it was you know, quote unquote, suppressed. So it had no legal canonical standing at that time for those 13 or so years. Um, and it is significant that, you know, Archbishop Lefebvre is the really the single handedly preserving these these traditions of the church, her, her liturgy, her her doctrine and so on. Certainly in maintaining any any kind of international uh Association, international presence uh, uh, of these uh, of these great treasures of the church. 
1988, of course, is, as I think you've you looked at with Bishop Filet, the, the famous Episcopal consecrations, uh, four bishops consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre with the assistance of Bishop de Castro-Meyer at Econ. Just a couple days later, on July 2nd of 1988, John Paul II issued a, a document, uh, Ecclesia Dei et Flicta. So a couple of words in that sound pretty familiar, Ecclesia Dei et Flicta. So the Church of God afflicted. And it declared that that Archbishop Lefebvre, by this act of consecrating bishops, had excommunicated himself, and what uh, and the four bishops likewise excommunicated themselves, and um, charged them all with schism. And it's out of this document that we have the formation of these new groups, beginning with the Fraternity of Saint Peter. Uh, dedicated to the saying of the traditional Latin Mass with the the formal approval of Rome. So the document is 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 quite significant for a number of reasons, but for this the, our our present conversation, John Paul II wrote: the root of this schismatic act can be discerned in an incomplete and contradictory notion of tradition. Incomplete because it does not take sufficiently into account the living character of tradition which as the Second Vatican Council clearly taught, comes from the apostles and progresses in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's that same part of Dei Verbum quoted by Pope Francis. Okay. And it, it continues on from there, the, the quotation, there is a growth and in insight into the realities and words that are being passed on. This comes about in various ways. It comes through the contemplation and study of believers who ponder these things in their hearts comes from the intimate sense of spiritual realities which they experience, and it comes from the preaching of those who have received, along with their right of succession, the episcopate, the sure charism of truth. So it's it's this notion of of living tradition, so evolving tradition, evolving Catholic faith. Right? It's, a, it's a modernist phrase that means changing tradition. Okay, so no longer a deposit of faith, but a constantly changing and evolving body of experiences. Right, and it's po- precisely this idea that's used to justify all the modern changes. You know, the it, we, the old ways of doing things, they don't speak to modern man anymore. You know, modern man has, you know, these ridiculous phrases have co- has come of age and so on. And so we need to make a, a childish liturgy for him. Of course. Um, but that's another discussion. Um, but, you know, so it, it um, there's there. In this document, Ecclesia Dei Adflicta, you have these very problematic errors that, that come out of, of the Second Vatican Council reiterated. Here's John Paul II again. Indeed, the extent and depth of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council call for a renewed commitment to deeper study in order to reveal clearly the Council's continuity with tradition. Right? We have to study more so that we can figure out how this actually jives with tradition somehow especially in points of doctrine which, perhaps because they are new, have not been well understood by some sections of the church, perhaps because they are new. He says that. New points of doctrine, that's an impossibility. You have a deposit of faith that remains the same. It can be explained in new ways. It can, that, that the understanding can become more perfect, but it cannot change and nothing can be added to that. Uh, You know, as a, illustration of what the church always taught on the subject, here's Vatican I. 
The doctrine of faith which God revealed has been entrusted as a divine deposit to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully guarded and infallibly interpreted. Hence also that understanding of its sacred dogmas must be perpetually retained, which Holy Mother Church has once declared, and there must never be recession from that meaning under the specious name of a deeper understanding. So that's quite in contradiction with what John Paul II is saying. So this document, from which was named the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, which until recently oversaw these communities and in turn gave them the name by which they're widely known and by which we're calling them, teaches a a new and erroneous notion of tradition. So an objection would be here, Father, well, you're just cherry picking a document. You know, the, the the groups may be perfectly fine. It's just because... You know, there's this document that that set up this commission. It doesn't mean that everyone within the commission is bad. Right. Well, and it's not you mean under the under the commission. Yeah. So that might be the case, except it 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 begins this movement and the fraternity of St. Peter in in their very constitution. So the the governing documents of their of their institute um, recognize that. Ecclesia Dei Adflicta is at the origin of their foundation. Okay. okay. Uh, and then that they are founded in the spirit of the apostolic letter Ecclesia Dei Adflicta. That's a quote. The Fraternity of St. Peter is founded in the spirit of the apostolic letter Ecclesia Dei Adflicta. Okay. okay. So it's not, it's not just what the Society of St. Pius X does with official approval. It's something fundamentally different. The price of that approval has been compromised on the level of principle. And that that compromise is built into the to the founding documents of the Institute, accepting the ideas of, of living tradition and, you know, the hermeneutic of continuity in at, at the root of their foundation. And we see the same compromise in the recent letter of the superiors general to to the bishops of France, professing their adherence to Vatican II. So, so this is this is a, you know, we're talking about the fraternity specifically here, but but all of these communities, um, they are they are under this this spirit of the living tradition, and therefore, because that's how they were founded, everything else is going to flow from that, even if they look and sound somewhat similar. Right, and you know, and I'm not saying that that. All of them are even adhering to the, sure. these ideas of living tradition, but it's, but it's again, it's built into the the their constitutions. It's built into to their way of life from the very beginning. So they're at least publicly adhering to these particular errors, while they may at the same time be privately rejecting them. Right. It, yeah, yeah. It doesn't quite <laughs> so work. you can't do that. There, there's there's a fundamental uh, and unacceptable compromise there. We'll appear to to accept things that cannot be accepted, but then more or less ignore them. That's th- that is it's it's not the right approach. And these these errors do these errors are the are sapping the life of the church to to simply even to even give the appearance of going along with them as if there's nothing wrong with them as if they have some kind of value for for souls and and the life of the church it, it is a compromise that's unacceptable okay so where should we turn next father uh, we we saw some of the history here but um, are there 
do they do these groups accept everything that Vatican II has taught? I mean, the the quote that you gave here at the beginning seems to indicate that they do, but but in practice, are they? And I would say, you know, probably not uh, in in practice. And I I you know I don't have any personal firsthand experience with with the uh, fraternity of Saint Peter and so on. But what from what I understand, you know, the the preaching. Um, among them is generally uh, quite orthodox. They, you know, they have traditional devotions. They they maintain the traditional liturgy, of course. So they are, you know, on uh, on points clearly at odds with this new conception of things. But again, it's it's a matter of a principle that does also play out in in practical consequences, even if not always and all the time. Mm-hmm. So, for example, their former superior general. Father John Berg, in an interview that he gave to to uh, to the Remnant newspaper in, in 2007, said that it was the um, the mission given to the the Fraternity of Saint Peter at its very foundation to show the continuity of religious liberty, ecumenism, and collegiality with the Church's tradition. And uh, you know, quotation is so the question from the interviewer is. Is it a mission of the FSSP or of specific FSSP theologian priests to attempt to show the hermeneutic of continuity with certain difficult passages of the Second Vatican Council in the light of tradition? For instance, religious liberty, ecumenism, collegiality, and interreligious dialogue. Answer. This is a mission that was given to the fraternity from the protocol at its very foundation. Hmm. And these these same comments repeated in conferences given um in Lexington, Kentucky in 2011, Charlotte, North Carolina in 2013, and, and maybe elsewhere. But it's, and I think as we've seen in this in this series, uh, those concepts, religious liberty, ecumenism, collegiality, they are not reconcilable with tradition. Right. So to accept that is to agree to do something impossible and something, again, that, that works against the good of the church and uh, works against the, the truth itself. Furthermore, they're 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 put into this box of maintaining the church's liturgical traditions and so on, right? Not because there's anything wrong with the new stuff, but because it's it's their charism. It's because of their particular way to serve the church, and not because of any doctrinal objections. Again, officially. I'm sure there are plenty of fraternity priests who personally hold doctrinal objections. But again, you know, the document in in whose spirit their congregation was founded merely mentions a desire to protect the feelings of all those who are attached to the to the Latin liturgical tradition. Okay, this is is a, a sort of preference-based policy, if you will. And confirmed by John Paul II on the 10th anniversary of Ecclesia Dei Afflicta, when he expressed what his intention was in, in issuing the document. And he says, while confirming the good based on the liturgical form wished by the Second Vatican Council and initiated by Pope Paul VI, the Church grants also a sign of understanding to those persons attached to certain previous liturgical and disciplinary norms. So there's nothing wrong with the new stuff. But we can give something to people who like the old stuff. And the Fraternity of St. Peter has effectively, and the other Ecclesia Dei congregations have effectively accepted that position. Right. 
Right? They didn't say, no, Holy Father, that's, that's, that's not what we're trying to do. We have serious doctrinal objections. Yeah. Right? They're, they're putting themselves, again, at least publicly, in that position um, imposed upon them by the church. As, as we're talking about this, I'm reminded of a, a sermon you gave about a year and a half ago, and it's, it's actually up on, on this same YouTube channel right now. Uh, and I think the title of your sermon was, We're Not Just Here for the Pretty Mass. Uh, and, and that was kind of your whole point of we're not just here because we prefer this mass. It's not a preference. It's a and we've mentioned that a few times in this whole series as well. Right. Well, it is a preference, but that's not well, the point. Right. right. <laughs> it is. It is a lot more beautiful. It is. It has, uh, you know, sure. many wonderful things. That, but there's there's something much more than that. Right. This this is a a perfect expression of our faith. And the Novus Ordo is is not Right. It, it undermines that faith. All right. And it, really, we should even, you know, a traditional Catholic is, is should be defined as one who has a principled objection to the, the novelties introduced to the church, which he judges to be a danger to the faith. That's not just a matter of of liking a more beautiful liturgy. But, well, when it's not available, I'll just go to the Novus Ordo or this one's closer to my house or whatever. No, there are there are principles at, at work here. It's not just that that one is better than the other, that one is good and the other is not. Right. Right. So, you know, they, they are, they are doing, and, and again, we're, we're painting with a really broad brush here. Um, and, mm-hmm. and there are definitely priests who are doing some good things. There are some, you know, there are some good fruits that are coming out of this. Uh, but is the fraternity and these other Ecclesia Day groups, are they providing an appropriate response to the crisis or a good enough response to the crisis. And that, then that's my whole point here is, is no, they're not. And they're, and they're forced also to avoid any criticism uh, of the new mass. They, they permit their, their members to proclaim the, the doctrinal integrity of a liturgical form of the liturgical reform um, to the faithful, you know, without any repercussions, uh, Whereas if, uh, if, if I did such a thing, you, I would certainly be getting a phone call at the very least, um, maybe packing my bags. <laughs> um, this implied acceptance of, of living tradition, um, you know, it's, it's at the, it's at the origin of all of these groups. And that's, that's a very serious problem. Um, you know, in a sense, they're, they're kind of whether they intend to or not, and I don't think they do intend to, they're incarnating the hermeneutic of continuity. They are living tradition, right? We can, we can take, we can have both and we can have the, the, the pretty stuff, the, the solemn high mass and the Gregorian chant and the incense, but also we can, you know, take advantage of whatever parts of, of the new thing that we like, or, um, you know, we can all be, be part of the same, you know, work for the church, combining the the elements of these these two things, one traditional and the other not. Right. Okay. So they're they they're combining within themselves the the liturgical synthesis of the unchanging faith. And again, whether they intend to or not, the, the doctrinal synthesis, the, the doctrinal ideas that made that liturgy change. Mm-hmm. And, you, and again, you, you can't do it. There's a fundamental opposition. Right. So it's interesting you said that. I hadn't thought of that before. They, th- these groups kind of are the personification of this hermeneutic of continuity. They're, it, it's almost like they are trying to be a 
uh, like a religious order. Like in, in the in the preconciliar days of the church, there were the Benedictines and they had their special charism. And then there were the Dominicans, they had their charism. It's kind of like that's what the fraternity is doing. The, you know, Vatican II, the, the Reformed Church is fine. We don't like it as much, but we're just going to do our own thing over here and we can play a part in this whole thing. And you're saying that's missing the point. Yes, it's, it's definitely missing the point. And, I, and again, I'm... I'm sure there are plenty of them who would say that yeah. we're not doing that, right. but I'm saying that that based on the principles and based on their their constitutions and based on the document and in, in at the origin of their foundation, whether they want to or not, they're doing that. Have have any of them been outright proponents of what Vatican II is doing? I mean, I know you had that quote earlier where they they talked about you know collegiality, religious liberty, liberty, etc. Um, but it, it seems like they tend to stick to you know, the pre-conciliar documents as a whole, but is that always the case? No. And sometimes you will come across one or other of them who says something very much in, in support of the, of some new thing that's going on, um, something or something strongly in opposition to, to the society and to our positions. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the, district superior of, of the German district of the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter in 2017 said publicly, uh, published publicly, the, the Fraternity of St. Peter, however, has accepted to study without prejudice the conciliar text and has come to the conclusion that there is no breach with any previous magisterial statements. However, some texts are formulated in such a way as they can give way to misinterpretations. But in the meantime, Rome has already made her concordant clarifications, which the Society of St. Pius X should now also recognize. What what clarifications? <laughs> it's news to me. Right. Uh, it and it, again, it's it's impossible to to say that these things, which are you know, we, which we, again we've pointed out in, in throughout this this series of podcasts, that they're they're at odds with what the Church has always taught. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the monastery of, of Liberu um, made the effort to, to publicly um, rehabilitate, if you will, or habilitate uh, religious liberty. One of their monks wrote a 2,000-some page study claiming to, to uh, demonstrate that, that the Vatican II's teaching on religious liberty is in line with tradition. Um, a few years later, another monk at the same monastery wrote a refutation. Uh, but you know, again, it, it's it it's this mentality where you've you've accepted it again at the root, and then you end up trying to to make the reality fit the the practical situation that you've imposed upon yourself or allowed to be imposed upon you. Right. So that's that's on the the doctrinal side of things. Um, just from a stability side of, of looking at things. Uh, the Society of St. Pius X has always been uh, kind of, well, we, we just looked at it in, in the last couple episodes about how it's not really, uh, doesn't really have an official position within the church unless you look at supply jurisdiction. Uh, there's always been this kind of sword of Damocles hanging over the head of, of the Society of St. Pius X, but at least the fraternity uh, is perfectly fine and there's no issues uh, with their canonical position. They're not at risk at all. Well, uh, given the recent motu proprio, who knows what's coming right. uh, down the pike for them? You know, they're they're always trying to to kind of play both sides 
They're always walking on eggshells. They're always putting themselves in the position of being slapped down for being too traditional, which is which is illegitimate. It, it, you, the, the authorities have no right to to punish anyone for being too traditional. You can't be too traditional. Right. Um, so that's, you know, looking at the canonical position, um, it seems to be that they they are in the position that they are in you know, stable within the church because they have accepted Vatican II. And that's really the only thing that's, that's keeping them tethered. Even though, again, probably a lot of the priests don't even agree with that tethering. Right. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, you know, and we're not the only ones who have, have pointed this out. Uh, Archbishop Vigano has, has uh, said the same thing just to, you know, to give a, a different point of view. The canonical position of the Ecclesia Dei communities has always been at risk, he says. Their survival is linked to their at least implicit acceptance, excuse me, implicit acceptance of the conciliar doctrine and liturgical reform. Those who do not conform by criticizing Vatican II or refusing to celebrate or attend the reformed rite, if so facto, put themselves in a position of being expelled. The superiors of these societies of apostolic life themselves end up being the overseers of their clerics, were strongly advised to refrain from criticism and to give tangible signs of alignment from time to time, for example, by taking part in celebrations in the quote-unquote ordinary form. Mm. That's all this Archbishop Vigano. And again, that's, I think that's quite accurately sums it up, is they, because of what they have accepted, they put themselves in that position of, of always having to make compromises, even if they're small things. And then, you know, who knows what comes next? They're, they're, you know, one of the one of their district superiors, if I'm not mistaken, um, when the new motu proprio came out over the summer, effectively complained, we're, we're treated worse than the Society of St. Pius X. <laughs> um, but then you put yourselves in that position right. I think, uh, of uh, of having to, to try to keep one foot in in, in each of, of two boats that are that are moving further and further away from each other. Eventually, you have to pick or fall into the water. So, so these uh, these groups do celebrate the the new liturgy. I'd say probably in general, not much. Okay, but in principle, they can, and in many cases, they have. Okay. So, uh, Dom Gerard, the uh, the late Father Abbot of the Monastery of Liberu, uh, can celebrated the new mass with the Pope in 1995. Um, Monsignor Vach, the Superior of the Institute of Christ the King, did so in 1991. Uh, the Fraternity of St. Peter uh, had to accept the principle of celebrating the Holy Thursday Chrismal Mass with the bishops of the diocese in which it's established in uh, what's called the Rocco di, di Papa meeting in 2000. Um, so in principle, every priest of the fraternity uh, has the right to and cannot be expelled for celebrating the new Mass. The fraternity of St. Peter 2016 general chapter said the compromise of February 2000 authorizing the fraternity of St. Peter to con celebrate the Novus Ordo only on Holy Thursday was revoked and the priests of the fraternity of St. Peter are authorized to can celebrate the new rite as often as they wished. Okay. And you have the same, same thing, right? Uh, as a priest of the society of St. Pius X, you can say the new mass whenever you want. <laughs> if I want to look for a new job and a new home. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh you know compromise everything that i i stand for right yeah i could do that sure sure 
but but again, this is and, and we've gone through these episodes on on the new mass, and we've gone through and, and talked about how these the, the new mass in and of itself is a compromise. Um, and even if the majority, you know, ninety five percent of the priests, ninety five percent of the time are not saying the new mass, the fact that again their superiors are doing it, and there's these consolidations in the chrismal masses. Again, it's a principle there. Right. And I, they, they told Archbishop Lefebvre at one point, just say the new mass once right. and, and you can have your approval. And he refused to do it. And I, and because again, that it's, it's a fundamental compromise on something that is, uh, touches a matter of faith. So, so we have, I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of concerns here that, that they are just, you know, on, on the principal level, on the, on the level of, you know, their superiors, you know, making these compromises. Um, and again, I'll, I'll ask the same sort of question. Why, why do they stick to the traditional mass? Why even be a part of this community if on the level of principles, they're okay with the Nova sort of mass? It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, I think in order to have, to have that official approval, to be able to say the traditional mass, and then you just have to kind of, you know, pretend it's not happening or turn a blind eye to the, to the compromises. Mm-hmm. But then you, you know, if you're really trying to do something for our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're really trying to reestablish his reign, if you, if you're working for the restoration of the church, you're undermining the, the work that you're trying to do. Okay. So there, there are definitely similarities. The, the liturgy for the most part, traditional Latin mass, same exact thing. This is that the society of St. Pius the 10th does. Um, Right. You know, the, the priests are wearing the cassock, just like just like you are, Father. Do, do they get a traditional formation, seminary training? I, the, yeah, for the most part. Okay. Their, their seminary looks more like ours than it would look like a, um, a seminary where they're teaching and saying the Novus Ordo Mass. Okay. Um, they have that, that more, um, more structured, more traditional formation. Uh, they, they have traditional devotions. You know, they promote the rosary and devotion to the sacred heart and other things that have, have, uh, lost a great deal of popularity in, in the modern church. Um, you know, they're, and as, as I mentioned, their, their preaching for the most part is, is, is not problematic. They, they teach the, the catechism, the traditional doctrines of the faith and so on. Um, so you have that, that apparent similarity with really fundamental differences. Right. And that the, the Society of St. Pius X is is pointing out that there's this crisis in the church and that it, it comes from these ideas that, that broke into the, the official structures of the church, if we can put it that way, at, at Vatican II. And and that the, the post-conciliar reforms and teachings have, have simply made the matter worse. And we refuse to accept those novelties. We do whatever is in our power to expose them for what they are, which are modernist and liberal corruptions that, that have no place in the Catholic church. Uh, and we do whatever we can to, to counter their noxious influence right, by pointing out those errors, but also by the, the promotion of, uh, the fullness of the church's tradition, uh, liturgical, doctrinal, devotional, uh, and otherwise. The Ecclesia Dei communities end up again, trying to play both sides, um, saying that, with their actions and at times with their words, that some kind of compromise between these these two conceptions is possible. That there can be peace between the, the new man-centered conception of the church and the liturgy, which is which is ancient and, and is manifestly God-centered, 
and you know even going so far as to to accept some of these these um, you know explicitly these these man-centered uh, new teachings of religious liberty, ecumenism, collegiality, and so on. And again, I, I recognize that that not every member of those communities wants to accept those novelties. But it, you know, then what are you still doing in those communities that officially do accept them? Uh, and we again, we have to point out that this this approach is at the origin of the Ecclesia Dei communities, and and uh, as a consequence, informs their whole existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, we to be fair, we we've talked about you know several times and and reiterated again here. There's there's definitely a lot of good work that is being done. Um, and so the last last thing I'll I'll kind of ask you, Father, is uh, good things being done in these in these groups. There are some good good results, and there are some at least on the surface a lot of good things that are happening. Um, and oftentimes it seems like. The fraternity and the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth and the Institute of Christ the King are all kind of pushing for the same sort of thing—a restoration of tradition, going about it in very different ways, uh, but broadly all doing the same sort of thing. So there's this movement and there's this you know outcry recently: Hey, you two, stop the infighting. Society of Saint Pius the Tenth, stop fighting with the fraternity. Let's unite the clans and let's work together for this common goal. So. What do you think, Father? Is there a an opportunity here to unite the clans and all work together? Well, I I, I think the the sentiment is is certainly well intentioned. That you know, if if it were a matter of 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 simple personal differences, then then we could talk about sure. it. But it's it it is important to to reiterate that it's it's not it's not because we have some sort of personal disagreement or it's just a matter of of externals or uh, a question of approach um, but there's there's a fundamental divergence in our view of the present state of the church and what we should do about it mm-hmm. so there can't be any significant uniting unless we we share that same fundamental vision so Either they change and they say this living tradition stuff has got to go. It's not a matter of the hermeneutic of continuity. The new mass is is unacceptable. Religious liberty, ecumenism, and collegiality are unacceptable, right, et cetera. Then we can talk. Or if we abandon our principles and decide that unity was was more important than, than holding on to them, then I, there could be some union, but God forbid. Um, so – we can't unite unless they change or we change. Because again, there's there's a fundamental divergence, and and we cannot accept that that they what they have enshrined in their uh, their existence, their their constitutions, their their way of life as being acceptable. Mm-hmm. So so I mean, are they are they more on our side? Are they more to the side of, of society of Saint Pius the Tenth? Or are they more to the side of of the modern hierarchy? You know, it's so, and I would say it, it differs probably from from member to member. Mm-hmm. And again, there sure there are a lot of them that are are very close to us in in their thinking, um, but institutionally, they're they're closer to that that notion of the hermeneutic of continuity, mm-hmm. even though they which, even though they look 
a lot like what the Society of St. Pius X is right. doing at, at the core. It's just right. not there. Okay. Right. And, you know, and this is something that's not going to be apparent to the average Catholic right. in a pew. So, so, I mean, again, to be a little bit flippant, it sounds like you're just being very insular and you don't want to accept any, you know, it, you don't want to accept any fraternity, you know, priests or people who go to these chapels to come to a Society of St. Pius X Mass, Father. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, not at all. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're more than welcome. Um, you know, the, the faithful are more than welcome to come to the, the uh, uh, SSPX. I know that that might make them unpopular with some of their friends, yeah. uh, maybe in some priests and the, the priests, uh, the, the religious in the, in these communities where we're always happy to, to meet with them, to talk to them, to express our, our positions and so on. Uh, but we can't, you know, have a, a sort of a more comprehensive and, and unity that, that doesn't take into account the, the reality of things. Right. And, you know, the, the, you know, and I'm, I'm sure this is not, the differences are not apparent to the, uh, to the average member of the faithful in the pew, mm-hmm. right? That the priests of the return of St. Peter are not preaching the hermeneutic of continuity, uh, every Sunday. Right. And most of them probably don't even believe in the hermeneutic of continuity. Maybe that's, maybe I'm, that's too strong and I don't have that personal experience, but I'm sure a lot of them don't. And what they see on Sunday is going to, to look very much like it does, um, at an SSPX church. Yeah. Nevertheless, the, the important point here, and I think that's really brought out by the, the recent, uh, motu proprio, uh, it's accompanying letter and that response from the superior general is that they are taking a fundamentally different approach. And that if you, if what you want to do is just have your, your pretty mass in, in a nice church and the, the trappings of tradition, with you know some of the doctrine and devotions, then you're in the right place with the Fraternity of Saint Peter. If what you really want to do is to oppose the, the the present crisis in the church in its in at its root in its causes, then where you should be is with the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth. And I think, and obviously, I'm going to say that that's where every Catholic should be because this this modern mess is is offensive to God. Is it? denigrates the position of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the respect that's due to him. It, it leads souls away from, from the truth and, and risks damning them. And that's something that cannot be taken lightly. That's something that cannot be compromised with. Right. Well, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for going through this all with us. Uh, like you just said at, at the end there, they're, they're not overtly saying things from the pulpit, like the hermeneutic of continuity is great and all this stuff. And, and for people uh, like me who, you know, I go to the Society of St. Pius X Mass and, you know, if I were to go to a fraternity mass, it would look exactly the same. And so I kind of sit here and go, why does the Society of St. Pius X say the fraternity is bad? It seems exactly the same. It's not immediately apparent. And that's, and that's the issue. Right. Right. And that, and again, we have to, why have they been granted a canonical standing right. and we have not? Right. What's, what's the, the fundamental problem there? It's because they have accepted compromises that we say are unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it really does come down to that. And that is anybody who's looking at it should say, should try to examine that, you know, in the light of Catholic truth, this acceptance of living tradition, the acceptance of the notions of the, the hermeneutic of continuity, the acceptance of religious liberty, humanism and collegiality. Is that acceptable in the, in the light of the principles? Can, can you make that compromise without 
undermining the faith. And our position is going to be no. And the at least official position of the Fraternity of St. Peter, the other Ecclesia Day communities is going to be yes. And so it really, it does come down to principles and it has to be looked at in the light of principles, not simply from, from a, a personal point of view. You know, I know Father so-and-so in this Ecclesia Day community and he's really wonderful. I'm sure he is. And I'm not saying that he's not, but I'm saying that his, his you know, there are good priests really trying to do good work in, in the diocesan structures who you know, also say the new mass, but that doesn't mean that the new mass is good. There are good things that they're doing, but we have to make a distinction between the person and the good things they're doing and and what has to be done, what really is acceptable or unacceptable on the level of principle. Okay. That makes sense. Well, Father, thank you for taking the time to go through this again with us. Um, and I think this is the last episode that we have you on. So again, thank you for uh, doing all the research and taking the time to go through these episodes with us um, throughout this whole series. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 46 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, we're happy to welcome Father Michael Goldaddy to look at the Society of St. Pius X from an outside perspective to answer the question, can I attend an SSPX Mass? Can I attend an SSPX Chapel for my sacraments? There are a lot of voices saying that it's wrong, even sinful, to attend. We'll see that in detail next week. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.